Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better, to understand why the stock market goes up and down, to look at financial legislation that can impact your pocketbook. In the Plan Your Prosperity section, we take a deeper dive into a different financial planning topic every week. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy section, that's your opportunity to send me a question. So if you'd like to ask a question to be answered on the air, you can send it to askpeggy.com, A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and just submit, click the button to ask the question, submit it, I'll be in contact with you, and then we'll be able to put the answer on the air with any luck. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And this is for the week ending June 7th, 2019. It's been a couple of weeks since I've had a live show. The first week I was gone, I was mostly at a wedding in Hawaii, so on a family vacation. But I was also in New York City for two days. My book, 52 Weeks to Prosperity, won the bronze medal in finance, investment, and economics, and I went to the Independent Publishers Award Ceremony at the Copacabana Times Square, and I got my medal, so that was really fun. The second week, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was with the Financial Planning Association. We were advocating on behalf of financial consumers, and I'll talk more about that in the next section. So this is for the week ending June 7th, 2019, and I'm really glad to be back with a new show. It was a remarkably good week in the market. The Dow went up 4.71%. The S&P 500 went up 4.4%. The NASDAQ didn't go up quite as much, but it was up 3.88. Gold was up 2.66. And oil was up 1.27. Wow, that's a great week in the market. It must really mean that the economy is doing well, right? This is where market performance can be very counterintuitive. And this is why people who sort of trade stocks as a hobby, but they don't spend a lot of time studying it, can see some news, make trading decisions based off of it, and then they're just stunned when it doesn't work out. So why did the market go up so much last week? You know, we still have a lot of tariff and trade uncertainty, and there was a very good chance that there was going to be an arbitrary 5% tariff put on Mexico this morning. This is um, Monday, June 10th, but the market went up. And the market went up because the jobs report wasn't good. So the May jobs number came in last week, and it came at 75,000 jobs, which sounds good, except that the economists were expecting 
185,000 jobs. And some of the other economic data that came in was a little bit weaker than what was anticipated. So the jobs report really wasn't great. And the economic data was weak and the market went up. Why is that? That seems really crazy. It's because more than life itself, the stock market wants the Fed to lower interest rates. Now, if you're a listener of this show at all, or if you followed anything that I write, you know we've been tracking the projected interest rate movements pretty closely. And last year, there was an expectation that there would be several interest rate increases ending in the first quarter of 2020, trying to get our interest rates back to a rate where they really ought to be, and also giving the Fed a tool to use in case there's some sort of a slowdown or a crisis. Well, if you remember last fall, then... um, Both the president and the stock market just threw a wall-eyed fit and dropped and dropped and dropped. And finally, the Fed chair came out and said, you know, it's looking like the economic data is a little softer than I thought. Maybe I'm not going to raise rates anymore. Now, the economic data was softer because of all the trade war craziness that's going on right now. Okay, if, if we get into a giant trade war with China, if we have tariffs that actually go in place and stay there, this is not going to be good for the American economy. It isn't going to help us out. And you can tell by the market reaction to everything and the Federal Reserve's action to everything. This isn't just me talking. It really will mess everything up. Well, so then the market... Um, sort of recovered a little bit, and it looked good. And I, I've said, okay, well, the interest rates may be flat for a while. I think that what Jerome Powell did was probably a good idea. But, you know, this is it. He's certainly not going to lower rates. Well, now that this jobs report has come out, and there's just screaming from the market that they want lower rates and screaming from the administration that they want lower rates, there's now actually an expectation on the part of the markets that he's going to lower rates. And when he does that, that makes it cheaper to borrow money. Lower interest rates are better for the market. They are. It's, it's, it's good from that perspective. It's not good from the perspective of having as many tools as you can have, like I said, in case we have a real slowdown. You know, the softer jobs number, market's just looking for any excuse. So is Jay Powell going to raise interest rates, lower interest rates, or keep them the same? It's the Goldilocks question. And I have to tell you, I don't have any idea because none of this seems to be based off of really good economic policy. It seems like the good economic policy was established last June, and then we've just blown way past that. And so now where interest rates go is a bit of a question. I will certainly keep you updated. But what you see is because rates are expected to be cut last week, the U.S. Treasury yield dropped by 24.18%. That is that full quarter point cut that's already been built into where the rate is. So watch this space. We'll try to figure out what's going to happen next. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. 
And this week, the legislative update is a little bit more important than it is some weeks.、Um, I always try to find something interesting to share with you, but this week was was pretty amazing. Like I said, I was in Washington D.C. last week. I was up on Capitol Hill. I flew up Tuesday. I was there Wednesday in meetings, and then Thursday actually on the Hill meeting with staffers. Unfortunately, the D-Day celebration caused many of the lawmakers to go to Europe, and so they canceled Congress the day we were set to go up and meet with the lawmakers. So we met with staffers, which was great because the staffers are the ones who are always talking to the lawmakers, and in some ways, they they can help you、um, get messages across easier than the lawmaker himself or herself, who you might have for five minutes. But while we were there, the Securities and Exchange Commission published their regulation best interest, or Reg BI, which it's being called. It came out on Wednesday, and it is over seven hundred pages long. But it's really disturbing, you know. Again, if you listen to the show, you know I am the fiduciary champion, and the SEC was going to put out something, and after the last DOL rule went away, they were going to try to put in something to help keep、um, raise the standard for brokers, basically. Unfortunately, this piece of legislation, and I will be doing more on this、um, on this law. I've read about a hundred pages. I want to read the whole thing. I'm about a hundred pages in. I've read a bunch of summaries. It's kind of a mess. Okay, so they're calling it regulation best interest, and they're saying that stockbrokers have to act in the best interest of their clients, and that that just sounds really great, right? Except, then they go on to specifically say, but that does not rise to the level of a fiduciary standard. And one of the tools that the broker can use to accomplish the best interest component is to just have. Um, disclosure of all of the conflicts of interest, so that basically when you start working with a broker, you, you sign paperwork which you don't read. Okay, and in the middle of it, it, it sets out all of their conflicts of interest. You've had the opportunity to read it if you wanted to, and so they've done the disclosure. There is a place in the law where it says they actually don't have any duty to specifically show you that and ask if you have any questions. That that you can, they can operate under the assumption that you understand it unless you ask the question. So what that tells me it's a really long thing. You're going to have to sign it, and somewhere in the middle will be the interesting information. To that point, here is a piece of advice. I tell it to my own clients. Okay, I do not like for clients to sign paperwork the day I meet them, the day they first come in. Instead, I give them a copy of the paperwork and I tell them to take it home and read it and come back in a week and sign if they still want to do business with me. So the advice I'm going to give to you is: any time you're working with any financial professional, I want you to take the paperwork home and I want you to read it. I want you to read every single line of it. And then, once you know what it says, I want you to highlight the parts you don't understand, and I want you to go back in and make the broker explain it.
Now, so you're working with an investment advisor, so you don't have to do that, right? Yeah, wrong. Because as part of this regulation best interest, they just decided to drift on over into the IA space. You know, I'm an investment advisor. We're required to be fiduciaries by law. However, they've also now given us the disclosure cop out so that an investment advisor acting as a fiduciary meets that fiduciary duty somewhat by sharing with you their conflicts of interest through a disclaimer that you sign. So not only does the regulation for the brokers give them a big loophole, they added a loophole for the investment advisor community as well. So read it. I don't care who you're working with. Read the paperwork. Read every bit of it. Sign absolutely nothing the first day. Now, to make it even worse, people said, okay, well, okay, we're good. What does best interest mean? Well, they've decided not to define it. Seriously, the SEC has invented a new word because best interest isn't in the lexicon of financial advisory terms right now. You have suitability, which was the old standard, and there's the sense that Reg BI is higher than suitability. So to that end, that's a good thing, right? It's not fiduciary. They're very specific multiple times in this 700-page document. It's not a fiduciary standard. They don't define it. In fact, somewhere around page 70, they say, you know, we've been asked to define the term, but we don't think that's a good idea. We're going to leave it up to the brokers to decide what it means. So we have a new regulation with a new standard that isn't defined that can be basically disclosed out. Additionally, they say that the cost of the investment does not stop a broker from, or an investment advisor from that matter, from acting in your best interest. Now, some of that makes sense. The cheapest possible investment isn't always exactly the best. If that were the case, we would all be in the S&P 500 index fund because that is the cheapest investment. But if you get into an international fund, it always costs a little more. If you get into a small cap fund, it tends to cost a little more. So, I mean, cheapest isn't best, but this is pretty broad that they're giving. In fact, they list out some of the kinds of investments that they think might be okay for a sophisticated investor. They're just flat out expensive. So even though Reg BI doesn't care about fees, I do. So I want you to find out how much it's going to cost and how much money that person selling it to you is going to make. I don't really believe we've cleared anything up with this. I do believe they've given the brokerage community a huge amount of cover in the language of, look what we're doing for consumers. If you read the consumer groups, they're not happy. There may be some lawsuits issued over this. It's a huge, hairy deal. I am trying to finish it. I'm trying to write a blog post on it. I will let you know on the radio show when the blog post is out and where you could go read it if you wanted to. All I know is from a first glance, everything that I just told you I know to be true. Super problematic. You need to be careful. You need to ask a ton of questions and really do your due diligence on absolutely everyone you're working with, now even in the IA space as well as in the brokerage space. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show.
My name is Peggy Doviak, and today I want to talk to you about saving an emergency fund. Now, you might have heard of an emergency fund. The way it's generally defined is three to six to nine months worth of your bills that you set aside. Okay, so I want to take a deeper dive into this, and I want to try to give you some strategies, because I bet if I was talking to you right now, and you said, you know, hey, Peggy, tell me about an emergency fund, and I said, well, you know, what you need to do is save nine months' worth of your bills. If you were drinking coffee, it would probably come through your nose. If you were driving at the time, you're probably going to go off into a ditch. Because the idea of saving nine months' worth of your bills, especially if you don't have any money saved in the bank right now, can be very overwhelming and very daunting. In fact, when I speak to groups, I'll ask for a show of hands, how many of you have an emergency fund? And about half the audience will sort of about halfway raise their hands. And I know they've got a little money in the bank. A couple of people will raise their hands really high, and I know they're probably fine. And the other half won't make eye contact with me. And so, I mean, they're like looking down at the floor because they're afraid that I'm going to ask them to do something that they know they can't do. And I don't think financial celebrities help this at all. You know, it's really easy to be judgmental from in here in my radio booth, because I'm not looking at you right now, or from the other side of a TV studio. It's much harder to sit across the table from somebody and help them work out their money in a way that's realistic. So, here's what I'm going to recommend that you do, and I call it the two-week emergency fund. I want you to start out by tracking your bills. I want you to really track them. Okay, one thing that messes people up is they kind of estimate what they spend. I want you to know exactly what you spend. And the way you're going to know that is by writing it down for a month. And then when the month is over and you tell me, I don't spend that much, this was an extraordinary month, then I'm going to tell you, okay, well, then do it for another month. About two or three times of this, you're probably going to find out you spend more than you think you do. So that's going to give you a really good place to start. Once you know how much you spend, I want you to break it between those bills that you would have to pay to keep the roof over your head and your car driving and your cell phone turned on and the utilities on and food on the table. Now, food on the table is not gourmet coffee, and it's not a fast food lunch every day, and it's not family-style dining twice a week and nice dining once a week. It's not cocktails with your friends. Okay, food on the table is food on the table. What if you were um, eating breakfast at home, taking your lunch to work and cooking dinner, what would that food bill be? Okay, that amount of money is what your non-discretionary or gotta pay them bills is comprised of. This is what you have to have every month to make it work. You don't need to include your spending money. You don't need to include your eating out money. That's all money that if something went really, really, really wrong, you could cut all of that out. Instead, your emergency fund is based off of those bills that must be paid, your non-discretionary expenses. So, now, once you know what that number is, I don't want you to multiply it by 3, 6, or 9. I want you to divide it by 2. 
So I want you to save two weeks worth of your bills. I bet you can do that. And I bet when you look at that number, that isn't a number that is so terrifying that you're not willing to tackle it. It might take you six months, might take you a year. I want you to do it anyway. I want you to save as much as you can until you have your two weeks worth of bills saved. And you know what? Right then at that moment, you are going to be ahead of most people. Then I want you to do it again. So now I want you to try again. You've got your two weeks of bills. You're a rock star. I want you to save two more weeks of bills. Okay, and I want you to set that money aside. And now guess what? You've got one month of an emergency fund saved. And I want you to keep going like that. Okay, if you have just a month of your bills in the bank, it won't save you from losing your job. I mean, that is really the primary point of the emergency fund is what happens if you lose your job. But one month of bills would give you the ability to put tires on your vehicle. It would give you the ability of getting a new dryer without having to put it on a credit card and never getting it paid off. Okay, by doing the two weeks first, you've got some rainy day money set aside. And if it starts storming like crazy, you can use it for that. You need to put it back. You're also, by taking it at my rate, developing a pattern of being a saver and not a spender, even if it takes you a long time to save the money. If you're laying it back, you're really changing your thinking patterns about money in ways that aren't even painful to do. And you can be really proud of yourself when you get it. And I'm absolutely confident you can get a two-week emergency fund saved. Now, once you have your emergency fund, it never goes in the stock market. It goes, it's boring, and it's in the bank. Okay, there's nothing fun and interesting and exciting and sexy about your emergency fund. Needs to be liquid, turn it instantly to cash, and it can't have loss of principal. That's why you can't invest it. So have that cash in the bank, ready to go in case there's a problem. And then if there does, if something does come up, you'll be okay. You've got the money to cover it, and you've done it in a way that you've actually accomplished your goal. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question is actually a question that I got last week when I was doing some pro bono financial planning, which was Peggy. I'm spending more than I make. How do I, how do I stop doing that? And actually, we kind of had to back into that question because the question began, how do I spend less? And so then we looked at how much he was spending and we looked at how much money he was making. And it's like, okay, well, you're close, but you're okay. And then he says, well, but I didn't include this, this, and this. I said, so you're actually spending more than you're making. And he said, yeah, I am. So, of course, then your credit card bills are going higher. Things are a little bit scary. But, you know, the last thing you need when you've kind of gotten yourself into that situation is somebody who's critical. So the first thing I want to say is, look, stuff happens. Okay, you can suddenly get yourself into a situation. You don't really know how you did it. But there you are. You're spending too much money. 
how do you fix it without just blowing up your life? So, you know, if you listen to the last section on creating an emergency fund, the first steps are going to be really similar. Because the first thing you've got to figure out is exactly how much money are you spending. Now, that can be really scary, especially if you know you're spending too much. A lot of people never accomplish this first step because they're so afraid of what the answer is going to be. They know they're spending more than they make. I mean, just subconsciously, they know they are. But if they don't really look at it, they don't have to address it. So I don't want you to be that person. I want you to go ahead and figure out what that number is. How much are you spending in total on everything? If you're putting money, um, taking it out of an ATM machine, I want you to write out how much you took out and what you spent it on. If you're using a credit card, I want you to break it apart. I want you to figure out what you spent it on. If you go into a big store that has a combination of clothing and makeup and groceries, I want you to break it apart by category, okay? Because you may really need to keep buying the groceries, but maybe you should get out of the clothing section. So you've got to understand where the money is going. Okay, once you know where the money is going, some of the next steps are actually not that difficult. You know, one of the things that I helped this person um, decide to do was buy a crock pot. And I know, welcome to the 70s, but the, one of the reasons why busy people eat out is because they don't have time to cook. And you come home and you're tired and there's nothing ready for dinner and you've been working all day and so you go out. Well, what I found is by putting something in the crock pot in the morning, then when I walk into the house, dinner's in the crock pot. And I am not at all likely to throw that dinner away and go out to eat because generally I'm not really going out to eat because I want to go out to eat. I'm going out to eat because I'm hungry and I'm tired and I don't want to deal with it. So set yourself up for success. Just do that two or three nights a week and if you eat out all the time, that will cut your eating out bill by so much money. Take some stuff, whatever you like for lunch, and take your lunch with you two or three times. I know, and especially in some of the more professional style jobs, what I'm suggesting is not interesting at all. And you have all these options to eat out. But you know what? A lot of your friends are probably in the same situation that you're in. And maybe you guys just want to create a group brown bag at day and you eat your lunch together. But you all bring it and you don't spend the money on it. And if you instigate it, I think you'll be surprised how many people will like the idea. Now, you might also want to look at things like your cell phone bill or your cable bill. Can you make some cuts in service and save some money? I mean, obviously, um, you have to have electricity. You might be able to turn up your thermostat a couple degrees or down a couple degrees and get it better. But look at those discretionary things that you really want to keep. See if there's a cheaper plan. You can, if it's really bad, look for a cheaper place to live. You know, that will help cut your bills. You can, if you absolutely have to, get a second job. What you can't do is stay over your means forever. You'll go bankrupt, okay? I know you'll get a raise at some point, and when you get that raise, then you can get the better cell phone plan. But if you count on it, you're so likely to have something go wrong, something you didn't anticipate, and now you're just so far in over your head, you don't know how you're ever going to get dug out of it. So 
take action, take it now, take it before the bills get big. Even if you think within the next two or three years you're going to be able to work it out, stop the bleeding today. It's also going to cut down on this weird low-lying stress in the back of your head. You're going to be happier. Your life's going to be easier. And everyone around you is going to be very glad that you did this. You can do this. You can probably do this relatively painlessly. We waste a lot of money that we didn't even know we spent. And so I want you to start there, and I want you to address it from that point. Well, I can't believe that we're just about done with the show. Remember that I will be providing you with more information on regulation best interest in future weeks, as well as a blog, when I'm really certain I've got all the details correct. And if you want to submit a question to Ask Peggy, go to askpeggy.com. You can click the link, you can submit the question, and I'd really love to have a chance to help you on the air. Otherwise, have a great week, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.